There are so many research benefits to having good fat in your diet, but there's just one little problem. If you can't properly digest the fat, you won't feel good, and a lot of people lack the key nutrients needed to digest fat. One of the best digestive aids I've come across comes from my friends over at BioOptimizers, and it's called Capex. First, it breaks down the fats you eat, using a proprietary lipase and denylene extract blend. This means you're breaking the fat into usable energy and not storing it. Second, they transport those fatty acids into the muscles and liver, where they increase fat acid oxidation inside the mitochondria. If you take a few capsules of Capex in the morning, it's gonna drastically increase your energy and fat putting for the rest of the day. It feels like a cup of coffee and lasts for 6 to 10 hours with no nervous system stimulation. And again, no matter what diet you're on, Capex enhances fat oxidation and digestion. You can also raise metabolic rate and boost other fat loss hormones. If you want to try Capex, then head over to kenergize.com forward slash seam. You'll automatically get 10% off any package of Capex with a coupon code seam10. That's kenergize.com forward slash seam. All right. So greetings, free thinkers, and welcome to another Biohack the World webinar. Tonight's episode represents our 20th month in operation. And boy, have we come a long way. We've learned so much about what's right and what's wrong, what works, what doesn't. And if you ask me, I think we're very close to arriving at the very simple truth of it all. And that is that the best things in life are free. They're just really fucking hard, like high intensity interval training, love, meditation, and humanely raised, sustainably raised carbon net negative animal protein if you're willing to hunt for it. But that's okay because it's the hard stuff that builds real character and grit. And as biohackers, our goal should be to build up that mental toughness that's going to be required to fight off the inevitable conclusion, death. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm David Choi, executive producer and co-host of Biohack the World. And we have an incredible show for you this evening as we cover the carnivore diet, mitochondrial autophagy, intermittent fasting, and so much more. If you know anyone who could benefit from the wealth of knowledge contained herein, please do take a moment to share this live event with your friends and family on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. <clears throat> and thank you so much to our donors as we move towards a 100% listener supported model for this show. We absolutely could not put these kinds of events on without your support. So make no mistake friends, fighting off death will be a bare knuckle fight to the finish. And this epic prize fight for your life will require every ounce of your will, intelligence, and warrior spirit, with your reward being your ability to wipe your own ass until the day you die. Yes, that's right. Your ability to be fully functional until your, until your final days is your God-given right and privilege. But I can't help but feel like the system is somehow rigged to keep us from achieving that goal. And let's unpack that for a second it's well understood that there are forces out there that think we are irrational beings. We are the race of laborers or the mob in the street that needs to be controlled and therefore saved from our own innate animality, thanks to the seminal work of Sigmund Freud. Some might argue that democracy in this country is a farce, just like our healthcare system. It's smoke and mirrors, a bait and switch, and a facade of false hopes all at the same time. But that's truly how it's been since Edward Bernays, Freud's nephew, invented public relations, aka propaganda, back in the 1920s. And for more on that, I highly recommend the BBC documentary series, The Century of the Self by Adam Curtis on the engineering of consent. 
And so fine, our whole way of life has been engineered by a small group of ultra wealthy free market capitalists committed to controlling the masses and creating an orderly society. I get it, I truly get it. And let's assume for a moment that that's just what needs to be done. They present two candidates to appease us and give us the illusion of choice. They've created this little playground for us called consumerism, where we can run around and chase our tails all day in a race to accumulate an infinite amount of non-essential material goods so that we'll never have time to question authority. They'll pass down health recommendations and dietary guidelines through seemingly respectable institutions. And that may be all well and good, except for the fact that they're not scientists, doctors, or nutritionists. They're marketers that hold board positions on chemical fertilizer and pharmaceutical companies and plant-based conglomerates. They put profits first before public interest and safety. And they're actively working day and night to skew the data in their favor to sell more drugs, all at the expense of our health. Look, we all know Big Pharma is today's big tobacco. And the whole point of this show is to stick it to them and to stick it to them good. And how do we do that? Well, I'm so glad you asked. It begins by hacking your diet and lifestyle to where you become radically self-reliant and your own number one resource for health and happiness, where you know and understand just as much as the next person about how to make highly informed decisions about your dietary habits and overall well-being. We must resist the dumbing down of America and take back control of our health. Let's show the world what it's like to have complete agency and autonomy over our own internal constitution. And for the record, I'm not saying to disregard sound advice, recommendations, and mandates from health authorities and politicians. But how do we discern good advice from bad in times like this where there's so much uncertainty and 300 million Americans do not know who to listen to for basic facts that can save their lives? And well, that's why we put this show together. We're gonna get super nerdy about some of the best lifestyle and nutrition hacks that can not only extend your life, but make you smarter, happier, healthier, and more resilient to any of the insults that threaten our health today. And so here to introduce our esteemed speakers this evening is none other than our Miami co-host, Jonathan Hippenseal, who is now back home in Tennessee with the rest of the Hippenseal family, one of the fittest families in all of America, I might add, and whom I've been doing Saturday morning CrossFit workouts with online. So grateful for that. All right, John, take it away. All right. Thank you, David. Man, if that doesn't set the stage for tonight, I don't know what else will. David, we, we appreciate everything you do here, and I'm honored to be along with you on this quest to biohack the world to ultimate health and longevity. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, tonight, we are going to start with um, Dr. Paul Saladino. At face value, this guy may be the most controversial we've ever had on Biohack the World. In our day and age, plant-based and healthy have become synonymous while veganism has seemingly transcended dietary choice into the realm of religiosity. Even for the open-minded biohacker, the idea of an animal-based diet causes many of us to raise an eyebrow. But everything about Dr. Paul Saladino and his work demands that we hear him out and delay jumping to any premeditated conclusions based on our upbringing or conventional thought and wisdom. I believe we even need to hold back our personal experiences bias because the journey of health is never ending and always evolving. I could be in great shape now, but there's always another level. The modern world is waging an ever intensifying war against our health 
So we must constantly train and adapt to do battle within each new age. Dr. Paul lived for more than a decade in the same traditional medical world that our whole Western health construct was born from. He studied to become a PA in cardiology, and then he went back to med school at the University of Arizona, focusing on integrative medicine and nutritional biochemistry. He finished up with a residency at the University of Washington, all the while becoming more and more disillusioned by the shortcomings of mainstream Western medicine and its symptom-focused pharmaceutical-based paradigm. He longed to understand why so many of the sick people he was seeing just weren't getting well. Enter the nose-to-tail carnivore diet. Now in his own private practice in the beautiful city of San Diego, Dr. Paul is hyper-committed to discovering and healing the root cause of his patient's diseases, regardless of where that leads him. And he's used the carnivore diet to reverse untreatable autoimmunity, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients. He's a true biohacker too. Not only is he pursuing his own optimized life, which includes a never-ending search to find that perfect wave, but he also has a powerful story of personal healing from autoimmune disease by way of the nose-to-tail carnivore diet. His book, The Carnivore Code, is the culmination of a rigorous scientific study to discover what he believes is the ancestral health solution. So ladies and gentlemen, fellow biohackers, without further ado, the carnivore MD himself, let's give it up for Dr. Paul Saladino. What's up, everybody? Good to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. That's like an incredible series of introductions. I think the show's over. I think you guys just like did the show. I mean, I'm just like the, I'm just the icing on the cake. I mean, that was the, that was the meat of it right there. You guys are incredible. Thanks for having me. So I guess, um, help me know what's next. Do you guys want to hear me kind of spiel? Are you going to ask me questions? That was my impression. Like, you know, I can just wind up and go, but yeah, actually you have 30 minutes on the floor for yourself. Paul. Okay. I get to do it all by myself, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> then let's start with some consideration of where we've come from as humans. I think that um, I will let you guys know that throughout my life, I've always kind of enjoyed seeing what comes out, you know, and if you watch my Instagram or you watch some of my other videos, you'll see that what I've been doing recently is just kind of getting up there and seeing what kind of thoughts flow. And so what I bring with me to this stage is really a lot less preparation than people would normally expect. But I think that that allows for, you know, uh, sort of spontaneous thought and uh, we can share ideas. When I think about humans and how we, as David said, can live as well and as long as possible. I think, what do we need to be that way? And as I was trying to puzzle this out over the years and my medical training, I've had a long circuitous route. I was a ski bum and a traveling bum. I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail before I went to PA school. In PA school, I got indoctrinated the first time with medicine and was in love with medications and in love with pharmaceuticals and in love with EKGs and then quickly realized that I didn't really find that very satisfying when I was treating patients. I just kind of had this itching to understand what the root cause of an illness was. And that was what has been my obsession for the last decade plus is what is causing an illness. And I think a lot of us might ask the same question. We see people around us, maybe it's ourselves, maybe it's our parents, maybe it's our friends who get sick, who get to a place where they have chronic illness. 
who have all sorts of diseases that we are generally told by Western medicine, the mainstream paradigm is these are not fixable. And this is the paradigm that we see. This is the subtle propaganda that those of us in medical school who have been in medical school or know people who are in medical school are very familiar with. When I was in medical school, the, the, the ebb, the underlying the undercurrent was always you're broken, your genetics are broken. Therefore, the only thing we can do to treat you is this magical medication from a pharmaceutical company. Because the alternative paradigm, a paradigm in which a human has control over their biology or a paradigm in which a human has control over their illness, that's very empowering and that's very disruptive to a pharmaceutical-based system. Now, I'm not saying that a pharmaceutical-based system is without merit or without use. I cut my hand yesterday. I was showing these guys before I've got now nine stitches in my hand after I cut it on, uh, on my foil board in the ocean. And when I was getting stitched up, it was nice to have some lidocaine to numb the nerves. But generally speaking, I think that the main place of pharmaceuticals is in the acute treatment of illness or infection or traumatic wounds. They're not so good at chronic disease, but this isn't really the paradigm around which medical school and mainstream medical education is constructed. And therefore it's not really the paradigm that is purported or that is, that is scaled out to the general population at a much broader level. That paradigm, the paradigm that's foist upon me, foist upon all of you is that you're broken. If you have lupus or autoimmune thyroiditis or eczema, which I had, asthma like I had, chronic illness, rheumatoid arthritis, whatever you have, it's because of your genetics. It's because you have a family history or it's because of something that Western medicine doesn't understand. And I, that always kind of bothered me. And I always thought there's something else going on there. There must be a fulcrum. There must be a lock and a key. There must be something there, some sort of pseudo magical key that allows us to unlock that and understand it. Because everything I was learning about the anthropology, the indigenous cultures seemed to give me other stories. The incidence of chronic disease, whether it was diabetes or insulin resistance, all these things, it doesn't really translate. We see so much of it more in our modernized Western society that's very civilized. So why is that? Why is there the discordance? And this was just the kind of thing that just bothered me forever. And I kept thinking, what is at the key here? What is the, what is the basis of all this? And of course, a lot of you probably know the rest of the story. You know, I went to PA school, worked in cardiology, didn't like the pharmaceutical-based paradigm, went back to medical school, went to residency, started out studying psychiatry because I was fascinated by narrative and story and felt like perhaps there was a little bit of humanity left in medicine and psychiatry and pretty much left that field feeling a little bit disillusioned also, finding that that was also pretty pharmaceutical-based and symptom-focused. So like so many of us, I've had to become self-educated myself, self-trained. We're all self-taught. No one is taught nutrition at an integrative level. No one is taught biochemistry at an integrative holistic level in medical school. No one is taught what might be causing autoimmune disease at medical school or residency. Nobody's taught these things. So it's all of us, all of us who are sort of empowered to step outside of the bounds and say, I'm an engineer or I'm, I'm you know, I'm a barista or whatever, or, you know, I do programming. I have brilliant friends who are, you know, programmers or do technology at Netflix or they're engineers or they're doctors. And we're all doing the same things. We're all journeying together to try and understand these out of the box concepts that were never given to us, that we're just, you know, absolutely adventuring through ourselves. So it's been the same way for myself. I'm self-taught with much of this as well. The nutrition, the biochemistry, certainly medical school and residency prepares one for a lot of the discussions, a lot of the literature, a lot of the terminology, but putting it together has always been my interest and understanding how it all fits together, pulling back that 15,000 foot view and saying, how do things fit together? 
That's what's fascinating for me, looking for patterns. And the carnivore diet where I've arrived right now is sort of just my current spot. It's the stepping stone that I'm at right now. I'm sure it will continue to evolve. It's been evolving, but it's where I'm at right now. You guys are all catching a snapshot of my own evolution, just like you are evolving too. But where I've come to is this. With my autoimmune disease, with my eczema, with my asthma, I realized that food was a trigger, but no doctor ever told me that. They just are taught, we're all taught, here's cortisone cream for your eczema. Maybe you'll even get a shot. Maybe you'll take, you know, an albuterol inhaler for your asthma. Maybe you'll take a long acting beta agonist like Advair for your asthma. Nobody's ever taught, is there an immunologic component here that might be triggered by some sort of a discordance between the environment, the things we're taking into our body and our genetics? Isn't that possible? Absolutely. And as I started to work with more and more clients and patients with diet, I just had more and more loss of religion experiences. There was this great song by REM when I was growing up, Losing My Religion. And that's, that's been my life. It's just been constantly losing my religion, losing religions that I've been taught, whether it was medicine or other religions, uh, just losing them all and trying to let them go, not with too much, uh, too much intention to hold on to them. I'm letting them go and trying to help my mind, help myself evolve the paradigm. So when we think about if food is the greatest lever in health and disease, what's the right food? And is it different for you than it is for me? Probably. Well, how much different? How much variation is there? What genes might be involved? Are genes involved? Which ones might be involved? And at what time in our life might we find some direction for this? So if you've read my book, The Carnivore Code, you know that, like I said earlier, the anthropology was the first kernel, the first sort of string that I pulled on. And that was where I began sort of my intellectual search as well. Knowing that indigenous people tend to not suffer chronic disease like we do at all, not have insulin resistance like we do at all, not have cancer incidents like we do. Think, what are they doing? How are they eating? How is their diet different than ours? Most of the literature, most of the study that's been done on indigenous peoples is done within the last 100 to 150 years. So we're looking at a really recent snapshot of them. And what we find is kind of the type of research that's informed things like the paleo diet, autoimmune paleo. They don't eat a lot of grains, kind of hard to find them. They're rare, seasonal. They don't eat a lot of beans. They eat nuts occasionally, depending where they are, but not a ton. They might eat some seeds, but not a whole lot. And they might dig up tubers. But one of the striking things we realize about them is that if you look at these indigenous people, their use of plants varies, but it's a lot of medicinal use of plants rather than functional use of plants as major foods. And we can dig into all this later with questions if people have it. But then we also have to think, how much of what people are eating now might be driven by availability or lack of availability of other foods? And if you turn the clock back even further, what you start to see is some pretty intriguing evidence that over the last 100 to 150 or 200,000 years, there's been some shifts in the way humans are eating, even till today. We don't have great records about what happened 200,000 years ago, 250,000 years ago, 2 million years ago, right when we were becoming hominids, becoming human, becoming homo habilis. Homo erectus, what we do know is that the size of the human brain based on the cranial vault size of fossils changed radically about 2 million years ago. And we can correlate that with the advent of hunting, looking at stone tools called Acheulean tools, which are bifacial, looking at cut marks on bones, looking at mass graves of animals, like suddenly our ancestors were herding them off cliffs and sort of killing them in a strategic way. What do we see? The human brain suddenly got much bigger and continued to get much bigger until about 40, 30,000 years ago. 
So what was going on during that time? A compelling hypothesis that I advance in my book, The Carnivore Code, is that that was eating animals, that eating animals made us human. And many people feel that way as well, that the unique nutrient profile of these animal foods in connection with what may have been a, a few genetic anomalies, the NOTCH2 gene perhaps, these two, this concordance of two things allowed our brains to grow. Something changed because we can look back even further and realize that for the 60 million years of primate evolution that preceded ours, our brain didn't grow on vegetables and fruit. It was pretty much the same size, 300 to 500 cc's. And then from 2 million years ago until about 30,000 years ago, it tripled in size to an apex of about 1,500 to 1,600 cc's. We know that in the last 20,000 years, it's begun to shrunk, shrink a little bit. We can talk about that too. But what was going on then? Well, it's pretty interesting to consider that that might have been triggered by meat and a lot of meat. The other thing we know about evolution, or at least about our anthropologic history, is that a lot of things have changed in the earth over that amount of time. And there's, this is so fascinating because this is what I was talking about earlier, about expanding the lens and seeing how things fit together. This is what's so fascinating. So we haven't even really talked about medicine much yet at all. We're talking about anthropology and archeology span and ethnobiology. Well, if we think about archeology, span we can look at humans and look at where we've come from from that perspective. And we see that a lot of things might've happened differently 2 million years ago, 500,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago than they did about 13,000 years ago. That's a pretty special point in human history and nobody quite knows what happens then. There are alternative archaeologists like Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, who suggest that there have been these catastrophic impacts on the face of the earth. And these are really compelling ideas that some sort of a meteor perhaps struck the earth 12 to 13,000 years ago in a period called the Younger Dryas. What we do know is that 12 to 13,000 years ago, a lot of things changed. Sea levels changed dramatically. There's warming periods and cooling periods. A lot of things changed radically. And one of the biggest things that seems to have happened around that time was the extinction of megafauna. One of the narratives here is that we hunted them to extinction, which might argue for the fact that we were eating a lot of animals. But I think that that's less probable than a mass extinction event connected with a catastrophe. Again, that gets deeply into the realm of speculative archaeology, but it's a fascinating idea. What we do know is that before 12 to 13,000 years ago, there were a lot bigger animals on the earth and probably a lot more of them than they are now. What happened in the interim, we don't quite know. What happened after that were some pretty crazy periods of warming and cooling that affected human civilization without a doubt. When it got really cold, things got really hard for us. Probably really hard for us to get a lot of animals, probably really hard for us to get a lot of plants. Pretty hard times for humans. And we can look back at even more recent history, the last 1,000, 1,500 years and see periods of warming associated with Renaissance and proliferation of art, periods of cooling associated with dark ages and plague, the bubonic plague, the black plague, things like this, major plagues happen when it cooled. So there's a lot of correlation between the events happening on the earth, our diet and how they might've all changed. The reason I'm talking about that is because I think that it's possible that humans might've had a different diet 200,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago than they did for the last 12,000 years. Jared Diamond talks about this in Guns, Germs, and Steel. He's had a lecture that he's done called The Worst Mistake in Human History, which is what he calls the cult of the seed. The idea that pastoralism, which we appear to have espoused 12 to 13,000 years ago, certainly led to some pretty major decline in the health of humans. Not surprising, right? You decrease the nutrient density of your food, humans aren't that healthy. They're less resilient. 
to infection, a concept that's very germane today. And you see more problems in terms of human skeletons. You see more evidence of porotic hyperostosis with a spongiform expansion of the skull and other tissues that are trabecular bone related to anemias and mineral deficiencies. You see more tubercular lesions connected with tuberculosis. You see more fractures and you see shorter skeletons for people within the last 10,000 years. So big change in the human diet from what appears to have been a predominantly animal-based diet to a predominantly or at least moderately, perhaps more than half based on plants and specifically plants that were cultivated and had pretty limited nutrient density, things like grains, corn, wheat, who knows what we were cultivating. But that's an interesting transition, right? What happened there? Why would that happen? And then look at what happened to humans when we did that. If we go back to that original period before Younger Dryas, before the meteor or whatever happened, there are these stable isotope studies that suggest that humans were eating a lot of meat, a lot of meat, a lot of animals. And I don't know how many of you have been out in the woods and gone hiking or camping, but you know, there's not a whole lot of wildly edible plants or plants that taste great in the woods unless it's the summer or the spring. So we think, okay, all right, this makes sense. And we start to kind of reconstruct it. And that was what I was doing in my head, you know? So if we go back to my story and I'm putting all this together, I'm thinking, oh, paleolithic diets make sense. Our ancestors don't really eat grains. They may or may not eat dairy. Let me try and cut those things out of my diet. Well, I felt pretty good, but my conditions continued. I had eczema, which continued. And I tried to cut more and more things out. And I went deeper and deeper into the realm of plant toxins. And what I discovered was just an armamentarium, an armamentarium of plant toxins. And then I thought, oh, this makes sense, I guess. Plants and animals have co-evolved for 450 million years. They've been sort of in this arms race and plants have had all these chemical toxins that we're never really told about. But at this point, think about the staggering amount of ground that we've covered. To really understand this, we would all have to be educated in botany, anthropology, ethnobiology, archeology, span medicine. It's just too much for any of us. And it's interesting to me that it's so hard to put all these stories together, but I wish I'd had all those pieces in medical school. I wish I'd been taught all those things in medical school because I think that all informs how we eat in order to be the healthiest humans that we can be. But when we think about plants and we think about their position in an ecosystem, we can anthropomorphize them a little bit. I think it's helpful and imagine that there's really only one part of the plant that it wants to get eaten at certain times of the year, and that's the fruit. The rest of the plant, the roots, the seeds, the leaves, no, those plants doesn't want anything eating that. That's gonna kill the plant. If that plant is going to survive, if that plant is going to pass on its DNA, which is what life does, which is a fascinating aside, how many people you know, have thought about this, that the DNA is able to just push between generations and generations, like our DNA has found out a way to become immortal. Plants DNA has found a way to become immortal too. It's just generation after generation trying to live, trying to persist. It's not in the business of getting eaten by animals, except that one time of the year when it wants an animal to eat its fruit, spread the seed, but not eat the seed because the seed is the plant baby. So if we look at the seeds, like a paleolithic diet might tell us, we see a lot of anti-nutrients. Is this just woo-woo speak? No, we see them. These are real science, things like phytic acid, oxalic acid, trypsin, digestive in enzyme inhibitors, all kinds of things like that. We see frank toxins sometimes in seed. We see hydrocyanic acid, completely toxic to mitochondrial electron transport metabolism. Plants don't want their seeds to get eaten. So remember that grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes 
are all plant seeds. Plants don't really want their leaves to get eaten either because that's how it's going to photosynthesize. Plants are autotrophic. They get energy from the sun. And they're going to put a lot of things in the leaves to dissuade animals from eating them. But how many of the plant foods that we eat today that we've been told are totally healthy are plant seeds or plant leaves? The majority, kale, spinach, collard greens, rhubarb, cauliflower, broccoli, all the brassicas, almonds. I mean, like everything we've been told are seeds and leaves. Occasionally we see stalks, which are similarly defended and a lot of roots out there, but I think roots are probably the least offenders. Fruit are different and we can talk about those too. But that's where I started to challenge this in my own mind. And I thought, ah, at that point, I was in the middle of my residency at the University of Washington. I'd done a lot of training in functional medicine, formally, you know, becoming certified in functional medicine through the Institute of Functional Medicine and honestly not finding a lot of answers there either, but being told that polyphenols and all these compounds and plants were so beneficial for us. So imagine the cognitive dissonance in this cranium as I'm thinking these things. Why would plant compounds be good for humans? Does that make sense? Maybe, but it also makes sense that we should consider the alternative hypothesis. What if all these molecules and plants that we've been told are so beneficial for us? Maybe aren't. And when I dug into that literature, what I found was fascinating that for every plant molecule that I could find, whether it was curcumin, sulforaphane, quercetin, flavonoids as a general class, isothiocyanates, all these molecules, we could find a benefit somewhere if we just had a very myopic perspective, if we just looked at that molecule in one little experiment. But whenever anyone had done the experiments to expand the frame, these molecules seem to have side effects in the rest of the body. And I thought, well, that, 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 that's interesting. And that kind of mirrors what we know about pharmaceuticals that are synthetic. There's so much talk now of the pharmaceutical that's gonna save us from coronavirus. And I just heard today that Gilead has developed a new molecule. And I thought to myself, yeah, well, what's it gonna do in the rest of my body? And anyone here who knows someone that takes a medication, pick a medication, any medication. Pick a medication, any medication. It has a side effect. And a lot of them are pretty unpleasant. In my disillusioned residency in psychiatry, what I realized was that serotonin reuptake inhibitors were horrible medications, not benign at all. Before I went to medical school, I was talking to a friend who was the chief of family medicine at the University of San Diego. He told me that proton pump inhibitors were completely benign, totally safe medications. And I thought, that's crazy. You can't stop the stomach from producing acid and expect that to be a benign change. That's ludicrous. And what do we know about PPIs now? Increased rates of dementia, pneumonia, nutrient deficiencies. What do we know about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors? All kinds of things, memory problems, libido, weight gain, lethargy, the list goes on and on. You mess with human biology with a foreign molecule, expect there to be side effects. Why do we think that these plant molecules are any different? Why would we expect that curcumin, a pigment, a polyphenolic pigment in the root of a turmeric plant would be somehow different from that paradigm, would break that model, would be a molecule that is only beneficial for a human but doesn't have a negative side effect somewhere else. Oh, this is really interesting. And the same thing with sulforaphane. Why would we expect that sulforaphane, which is an isothiocyanate and actually produced with a clear intention by the brassica family of vegetables, 
to dissuade animals from eating it. It's a clear phytoalexin. It's a clear plant toxin. Why do we think that that would magically be beneficial for humans? Sure, for both of those, we could find an isolated effect if we're very myopic. But as I talk about in my book, when you expand the frame, you start to see some challenging ideas. Sulforaphane is known to inhibit iodine exhaustion at the level of the thyroid. Sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant. It induces lipid peroxidation in the membranes of our cells. Curcumin, many side effects, potentially affecting the P53, which is a major tumor suppressor gene, affecting thioredoxin reductase, affecting topoisomerase 3, affecting the Herg channel, which is a potassium channel. These molecules are kind of doing some dirty things in our body, which shouldn't be too surprising because they're foreign to our biology. They're not needed by us. They're not vitamins. They're not nutrients that we get. They're sort of plant molecules. They're sort of part of plant biochemistry. So I, get into all, I go into all this in more detail in my book, but this discordance was quite fascinating to me. Why are we told that plant molecules are good for us? And I asked a controversial question. I've always just been a controversial guy. What if they're not good for us at all? What if they don't do anything good for us that we couldn't achieve otherwise? And in fact, they're really just net negative. And I stand before you as living proof that end-stage polyphenol deficiency is horrible <laughs> because I haven't had a polyphenol in my body in almost two years. So as I joked about the other day on Instagram, I've, I should be immediately combusting into oxidative fury right now. If my antioxidant system can't handle itself without exogenous polyphenols, where's the oxidative stress in me? Why aren't my joints falling apart? Why isn't my skin melting off? And why don't I have scurvy? Which is a whole separate question. But if you do the, if you do the actual science and you dig into the biology, what I've seen in myself is that when we eliminate plant polyphenols, we don't see an increase in oxidative stress in humans. And the literature supports this. There are numerous studies in humans showing that complete elimination of fruits and vegetables doesn't change oxidative stress parameters one bit. And there's actually studies out there suggesting that it improves them, which is a totally different paradigm. There's one study done in Denmark where they increased the amount of fruits and vegetables in the participants' diet for, I believe it was six weeks. And they went from, I think, one or two servings of fruits and vegetables per week to six to eight to 10 vegetables, servings of fruits and vegetables per week, a massive increase. The amount of vitamin C in their diet increased from 70 to 270 milligrams per week. And the amount of vegetables increased 10 to 12 fold. No change in the oxidative stress parameters, no improvement in the oxidative stress parameters. So there's a lot going on there. And you can do the same thing where you take people who are eating lots of vegetables and you remove the vegetables and see no changes. So if plant polyphenols aren't doing any good things for us, why are we eating them? Why don't our ancestors eat them? And so the question that I asked was, well, maybe they didn't really eat them unless they were starving. Humans are omnivores. I think it's hard to make an argument against that. We know that we can eat those, those type of foods. We know that we can eat plants. But what if plants are just fallback foods? What if we're so ingenious in our evolution that we really only need to eat plants when we're starving? If we can't get animals, is there some sort of a diet that looks more like a carnivore diet where we're not eating many plants and we're careful about the plants we're eating? We're careful to select the plants that are the least toxic perhaps including some for variety, texture, color, or entertainment, just to be with our friends. 
but having the plants that are the least toxic while focusing on the much maligned, the very often incorrectly maligned animal foods. So what you see is we're having a complete paradigm shift. This is completely diametrically opposed to what mainstream medicine is now saying. A lot of doctors are jumping on the plant-based bandwagon and what mainstream media is now telling us, plants are good, animal foods are bad. I can't do that with my left hand, you guys, because I got the stitches. Plants are good, animal foods are bad. What if the reverse is completely true? Let's turn it on its head. What are the most nutrient dense foods on the planet? What are the foods that have the most content of fat soluble vitamins, water soluble vitamins, minerals in the most bioavailable forms? If we ask the question empirically, if we ask the question scientifically, the answer is animal foods without a doubt without a doubt. Nutrients, much more present, much more bioavailable in animal foods, without a doubt. Many of the plant forms of these nutrients have to be converted into the animal forms, beta carotene to retinol vitamin A, alpha linolenic acid to EPA and DHA, the list goes on and on. It's very difficult to get nutrients from plants. We can do it in a pinch, but what if they're just survival foods? What if they're just survival foods? Do we need these foods? Maybe not, maybe not. And what if our ancestors up until 12 to 13,000 years ago were primarily just hunting animals, using plants as fallback foods when they couldn't get animals, but using plants to bridge the gaps and understanding that plants existed on a spectrum of toxicity. So after all of that, sort of the two pieces of a carnivore diet that I've arrived at are these two central tenets that contrary to mainstream media, animal foods are the most nutritious foods on the planet. And they should form a central part of every human's diet. They're an integral part of every human's diet. If we forsake animal foods, we risk greatly becoming malnourished and leading suboptimal lives due to nutrient deficiency. The second tenant is that plant foods exist on a spectrum of toxicity. And for some people, they can be very toxic and might just be some of the underlying issues that are causing many, much of this chronic disease that we're seeing. So animal foods, incorrectly vilified, incredibly nutritious, plant foods exist on a spectrum of toxicity for which many people will have differential sensitivities. And by appreciating that and eliminating the most toxic ones or eliminating all of them and then adding back plant foods gradually can lead to a great insight into the way our body is being affected by the foods we're eating. In the world of coronavirus today, I wish I could have been standing in front of all you guys in New York City at the assemblage right now. Everyone is worried about the immune system. And there's been very little conversation about metabolic health and nutrient adequacy for a healthy immune system. And this is greatly saddening to me because I think that that is one of the best or perhaps the most valuable productive conversations that could come out of this ever. What we know with coronavirus is that those who are obese, those who are insulin resistant, those with cardiovascular disease, those with hypertension, which are both integrally or intimately connected with insulin resistance, are much more susceptible to severe complications. So why is the conversation not about how healthy we are? Why is the conversation not about the terrain? Why is the conversation always about the microbe? Without getting to be too controversial, I'll just say that my sense 
is that so much of the fear and hysteria that's happening right now can only be based on fear of a microbe. If we think of ourselves as strong individuals, if we think of the terrain as the main determining factor, the conversation shifts completely. And instead of being fearful, we're empowered, empowered to change our lives, empowered to change other people's lives, and empowered to talk about these pieces of the equation of what are the foods, what is the lifestyle that allows us to become the freaking amazing warriors, the freaking amazing humans, human warrior radical people that are so ass kicking. Why have we forsaken that ancestral birthright? That's the question. And I think that the overarching idea is be radical, kick as much ass as you can. How do you do that? What should we fear? That's the puzzle that I've always been fascinated by. And that's kind of what I've arrived at. So I think I've gotten past my 30 minutes of ranting. Yes. Thank you so much, Paul. That was amazing. Thank you so much. All right. So we got some great questions um, coming in on the Q&A here, but I'm going to kick things off by talking, well, you, you brought up COVID, right? And, you know, we have that uh, interesting headline where Iceland, the, in Iceland, that over 50% of the COVID patients there are asymptomatic. And we do know about Iceland that they're just strong ass humans that come out of Iceland. They're disproportion, disproportionately represented at like strongman and the CrossFit games. They're super muscular and they eat a very animal centric diet. And they also live a very long life. Um, so maybe you want to talk a little bit about uh, how they're eating or do you have any insight as to like, why is Iceland so healthy? Well, I think we can look at the latitude. I mean, yeah. and they're also like, on volcanic ash. So that's kind of my theory is that because they're on uh, their, all their soil is on volcanic ash. It's super mineral and nutrient dense. And so all the plants and the animals that are eating those plants are also going to be able to absorb much more nutrient dense foods. So I think that's absolutely a great idea. And I think that sort of foreshadows what we'll talk about with regenerative agriculture or quality of the animals we're eating in connection with the quality of the plants they are eating. But I think that ultimately what one of the themes that might come out of this series of questions that follows is the importance of ecosystems. And I think that our ancestors have always understood that the ecosystem was sacred and an ecosystem that's disrupted is going to be very, it's just going to hurt every piece of that web, right? This is the sort of ancestral Native American adage that life, you know, man is just a strand on the web of life. He didn't weave it. And I think our ancestors always understood that they were part of an ecosystem, that the bison were part of an ecosystem. And if they disrupted that ecosystem, it was going to be very problematic. The health of the ecosystem is everything. And we've discarded that for discussions or for favoring things like monocrop agriculture. So that's foreshadowing about discussions of monocrop agriculture and ethics. But I think that you're absolutely right that in Iceland, we have a very high latitude. So the plants they're eating are minimal. And for much of the year, they're not eating a lot of plants, but they certainly eat some plants. But you're right, they do eat what might be considered an animal-centric diet. They don't shy away from animals. So Iceland, in a way, is the anti-blue zone. And I talk about this in my book, how the notion of blue zones is probably, is almost certainly cherry picked. It's a very, it's a, it's an eerie recapitulation of Ansel Keys and the seven country studies, what Dan Buettner has done with the blue zones. But Iceland is essentially a blue zone as well. You can find a high concentration of centenarians there and they eat a very animal centric diet. The point that you make about the asymptomatic levels of COVID or a coronavirus are quite fascinating. And I think that 
it asks the same question. What is it about the small percentage of the population that gets very sick with coronavirus that distinguishes them from the very large percent of the population that is asymptomatic or has a mild infection? Mm -hmm. Is this back to the same paradigm that I experienced in medical school? Oh, it's your genetics. Well, what if it's not? What if it's your nutritional status? What if it's a nutritional robustness? What if it is the nutrients in your diet and the nutrient density of your diet that's determining your response to everything, right? How fast you heal a cut on your hand, how quickly your body can respond to a novel infection, all of these things, how resilient you are emotionally, how your mood is, your libido, all these things, right? What if there is a lever that we can pull? What if this is not out of our control? Then the conversation is completely different. And we know that so many nutrients, vitamins A, D, E, C, K, K2 especially, all the minerals, selenium, zinc, copper, the B vitamins, especially riboflavin, pyridoxine, B12, crucial for a healthy immune system. Where, does, where do those nutrients come from? Predominantly, they come from animals. Mm -hmm. Those are animal-based nutrients. And we yeah. can talk about vitamin C and go down that rabbit hole. But if you really mm -hmm. want a nutrient-dense diet, and we really believe that nutrient density is tied to immunologic resilience, we're right back to where those nutrients found and we're right back to animal-centric diets. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a fascinating observation. Do you... Um choose your animal protein that comes from a specific region because i just was recently uh or just yesterday i looked up a new york um farm to get grass-fed animal protein and they said that because of the rainfall there the mineral density of the of the pasture there is not as great as it should be and so they therefore they leave out big mineral blocks for their cows and the cows can go and get the minerals that they need as needed i just was you know, really shocked that the cows are that smart the, to know like, oh, I'm actually missing this mineral. I'm going to go to the mineral block and start taking that. So it's a fascinating idea. I think that, that that gets back to the idea of ecosystems and respecting ecosystems. And I love what you said at the introduction for all this, that as biohackers, we're thinking about how to do all these things. And these things are hard, but I think that these things maybe weren't so hard in the past. Like certainly our life was not easy when we were indigenous hunter gatherers, but so many of these things kind of fell back into line when we were part of an ecosystem. We were eating bison, you know, our native American ancestors were eating bison off the plane in the United States. Like that's a, that's an ecosystem. That's a, that's a bison dying on the plains, putting all of its nutrients back into the earth. It's a bison eating grass. It's the native Americans like putting all the compost of the bison back into the earth. It's a native Americans not monocropping anywhere. And you think the nutrient quality of that soil has to be so much better. What's in the plants, those bison, they're part of an ecosystem. So mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think we've gotten ourselves into a little bit of a bugaboo here where mm -hmm. by destroying ecosystems, we've made some really bad uh, sort of, we've created some bad ramifications long-term, but yeah. thinking about the quality of the soil, You're right? where the animals that you are eating are coming from, that yeah. I think is, is huge. Yeah. Um, that I think is huge. I do think so about that as much yeah. as I can. I try to get my meat from places that have the darkest dirt, you know, you want soil. Yeah. You don't want dirt. I want dark dirt. I want like the mm -hmm. really dark dirt. Yeah, sure. But I also want to try to stay local to be environmentally sustainable. And so I'm choose, trying to choose somewhere up uh, in New York, but it's, it's tough. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, the majority of the soil in the U S I think is okay. But one of the things we know is that, you know, places in the world where there are nutrient deficiencies like boron, we run into problems with that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so we got some great questions in the Q&A. John, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, David, there? actually, Seem from Estonia just logged in. Oh, shoot. So, nice. so I'm going to introduce him real quick. Okay. We'll give him the stage, and then we'll jump right back into the Q&A. But, Paul, thanks That's so much. You, it's been awesome so far. Okay, we're going to give Sim the right. stage. Thank you. Um, so Seem is first and foremost a consummate biohacker. Uh, he's striving to optimize his own mind and body living out his ultimate purpose to empower us to live out ours. He hails from the tiny yet fascinating country of Estonia, which is a biohacking hotbed. And he's an author, speaker, content creator, and coach focusing on human optimization, nutrition, and peak performance. We're extra grateful he joined us. I think it's like 2 a.m. over there, so he just got on. Um, he also, he was only 20, he's only 26 years old. He wrote his first book in a month when he was just 21. Very impressive dude. He has an online following in the hundreds of thousands, and he practices everything he preaches in true biohacker form. I can't wait to see what he gets into over the next five to 10 years, but he already has more than enough to share with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Seamland. Hello, hello. <laughs> did, I, did I arrive late or something? <laughs> I definitely thought the... Uh... The uh, webinar was starting like uh, around this time, but <laughs> it turns out like you, you just guys already started. Yeah, we already started, but just take it away, man. We're yeah, you're good. Don't worry about it. Well, that's good. Well, it's not two a.m., but uh, it's uh, five, so <laughs> still pretty early. Uh, but yeah, I'm glad to be invited to this webinar, and uh, yeah, like <laughs> super grateful to be sharing the stage with uh, Paul Saladin as well. I'm a huge, huge fan of his work as well, and uh, yeah. I myself kind of focus a lot on the topic of uh, time machine eating and intermittent fasting because that's also one of those, let's say, topics or practices that's quite ancestral and uh, is very kind of aligned with the same principles of uh, like hunter-gatherer living and uh, just just being a, as a healthy biohacker as well because it's not just useful for uh, losing weight but uh, the research is also showing that it has quite a lot of uh, health benefits and uh, yeah, it's quite empowering even. Uh, I'm also gonna share some slides about it. Um, yeah, I'm gonna sh share some slides. I'm gonna share the screen so that you can check it out. And uh, yeah, can you see it? Yeah, you're good. Yep. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, and that's good. Well, yeah, basically I'm gonna cover what are the What's the what's the idea behind time machine eating, and uh, what's some of the research and uh, the benefits that you can expect uh, to gain? Uh, basically, this concept emerged just a few years ago uh, when uh, the these three guys, three scientists, uh, they discovered or they got uh, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for the discoveries of the mechanisms controlling circadian rhythms. The circadian rhythms themselves. Uh, they have been uh, around for a few decades, but um, science hasn't really fully grasped the idea of how they affect our body and uh, how they affect our health. Uh, but it turns out they're pretty pretty important, and uh, uh, you can probably expect uh, like more and more research come out uh, over the next few years. So basically, the circadian rhythms are your body's diurnal rhythms uh, that are connected with the uh, light or the day and night cycles of the environment and uh, it turns out that uh, basically every every cell uh, in your body 
and every organ, it has its own clock that is uh, kind of governed by the master clock inside your brain. And the master clock is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the central uh, circadian clock. And uh, this clock is uh, regulated by these, these different cues coming from the light, uh, the, the, the food that you eat, uh, physical activity, and even things like uh, temperature and uh, even like magnetic frequencies affect the functioning of this clock. And uh, this central clock is then regulating all the other clocks uh, in the heart, liver, muscle, kidneys, and uh, yeah, like every other cell. And this, this is will in turn uh, regulates your C faithfulness cycles, your uh, metabolic, metabolic processes, physiology, behavior, and uh, everything else related. So uh, it's, it's quite fascinating to see that uh, every, every, like, every living uh, organism in the world has its own sleep on a cycle and um, they're very much connected also with the day and night cycles of the environment. Uh, some research shows that time receipt eating is, is uh, unique in terms of how it affects your body in some ways uh, and especially if you compare it to like a regular way of eating that uh, doesn't involve any time restrictions. So this study it was actually published in 2018, it uh, found that early time seed eating where people ate between the hours of 8, 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. Um, improved insulin sensitivity, lowers blood pressure, uh, lowers oxidative stress, and uh, yeah, just also turns on the kind of this body's uh, own epigenetic genes like uh, sirtuins and autophagy. So uh, it is somewhat different from uh, the regular way of eating at least at least like the uh, regular american uh, eating pattern or the eating frequency uh, then there's also studies showing that time receipt feeding improves uh, risk of metabolic disease lowers body weight uh, lowers cholesterol lowers triglycerides lowers lowers uh, blood glucose insulin and other inflammatory biomarkers uh, studies in Ramadan, which is uh, like a form of time receipt eating or intermittent fasting, it's, it's been shown to improve risk factors for cardiovascular disease, uh, lowest blood pressure again, and the Ramadan is all, probably the most common uh, form of uh, intermittent fasting or time receipt eating that people do nowadays. Uh, but uh, it's not that, not that predominant in like the Western world. Um, but it's not only beneficial for uh, losing weight or improving health. Uh, even people who are into weightlifting can see great results from it. So this 2016 study uh, compared uh, one group who did like this very common form of time exceed eating where they fast for 16 hours and eat within eight hours versus the regular way of eating with no time, restric time restrictions. And they saw that both groups um, they were able to lose fat as well as build muscle. Uh, but the group that did the 16 and 8 method, where they fasted for 16 hours, they, they were able to burn more fat just a little bit. Uh, but it kind of shows that you can still implement this into like a physically active lifestyle as well and uh, not suffer any like uh, negative consequences, as a lot of like people in the fitness community would like you to think. Mm, and um, this study. 2017 found that time machine feeding on average reduced energy intake by about 650 calories per day but it didn't affect like um, body composition in a, in a negative way like they didn't lose muscle and they were still able to maintain uh, lean lean muscle mass 
this is probably one of the more um, renowned studies done about time machine de-ink, uh, where they took two groups of mice, uh, one group of mice ate within 24 hours a day, and the other group ate only within eight hours. And uh, they both ate the same amount of calories, but the group that ate uh, ad libitum or like uh, around the clock, uh, that that uh, those mice were uh, significantly heavier and they were basically obese and they developed uh, metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance uh, just because they were this, in this constantly fed state and they didn't allow the body to go through uh, like period of of a, of a longer fasting period and uh, compared to the other mice who ate the same the same they ate the same amount of calories but they were not obese and they were kind of protected against against it and there are many other similar studies that show that this sort of uh, time machine feeding uh, protects or is, is is able to protect against uh, high fat or like a, like obesogen against obesogenic diets where you're basically overfeeding and you can kind of mitigate some of the negative side effects from that because of this compressed eating window at least in some some of these studies and uh, the reason has to do with the circadian rhythms again so um, if you're if you're eating around the clock as you can see on the left uh, then basically you create this sort of a low amplitude in the circadian rhythms. You're uh, constantly in the similar state and uh, you don't give your body this sort of a, a rebound effect uh, compared to being in a time-restricted manner. Uh, you have like a higher amplitude in the circadian rhythms and uh, more robustness in it, which will then also lower inflammation and uh, improve overall uh, glucose to tolerance as well as insulin sensitivity. Um, another study compared uh, time machine eating, eating with uh, calorie restriction and uh, it turns out in that study that uh, the mice who were eating within like a short eating window, like three hours, which for them is almost like one meal a day, uh, then th those mice, they had uh, longer lifespans as well as greater health. And they were also protected against the effects of a uh, obesogenic diet just because of that compared to mice who ate uh, over the course of 13 hours. And uh, they, they were like 50-50 with the fasting period. And those mice who again ate with no restrictions as they beat them, around the clock then they didn't show any of these effects and the one of the researchers of the study concluded that uh, increasing daily fasting times without a reduction of calories and regardless of the type of diet consumed resulted in overall improvements in health and survival in male mice perhaps this extended daily fasting enables repair and maintenance that would be absent in continuous exposure to food so there is some unique uh, effects to this sort of compression of your eating window and uh, in fact uh, like a pretty recent 2019 study published in december uh, concluded that uh, studies in animals and humans have shown that many of the health benefits of intermittent fasting are not simply the result of reduced free radical production or weight loss instead intermittent fasting elicits evolutionarily conserved adaptive cellular responses that are integrated between and within organs in a manner that improves glucose regulation increases stress resistance and suppresses inflammation 
during fasting, cells activate pathways that enhance intrinsic defenses against oxidative and metabolic stress, and those that repair or 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 those that repair damaged molecules. So basically, the, your body still um, isn't just uh, improved due to the weight loss or fat loss. You also have this uh, sort of a unique uh, effect that is uh, connected to the the uh, all the other processes that that activated during fasting as well as the circadian optimization and one of those things is is uh, called autophagy which uh, a lot of people might have heard about and uh, autophagy is also one of the central components to uh, life life extension seen in calorie restriction so for example in some studies where uh, let's say mice who are genetically modified in a way that they don't express autophagy and they're put under calorie restriction then those mice don't live longer because the autophagy gets suppressed. Whereas when autophagy, autophagy gets uh, activated in a appropriate manner, then they still live longer. So uh, the, the kind of key factor is autophagy and uh, at least in, in calorie restriction a lot, in, in a lot of ways. And that also kind of tells you that if you want to gain the benefits of calorie restriction in terms of longevity and in increasing lifespan, then you don't necessarily have to focus solely on the calorie restriction but instead what you have to kind of look think about okay how do i gain the benefits of calorie restriction without necessarily like starving myself and uh, putting myself into the starva starvation state i can use some aspects of intermittent fasting to kind of mimic the effects of uh, calorie restriction and uh, still make it work in like a um, everyday setting more conveniently uh, so what are the benefits of autophagy in general? Autophagy translates into self-eating, and it's this uh, intracellular process where your uh, cell cell particles are being recycled, uh, whether that be broken mitochondria, even like like pathogens, intracellular microbes, um, inflammatory cytokines, whatever that may be. Like just it's kind of just cleans up the junk and uh, also turns it back into energy. So you're not really uh, wasting it away, you're using it, you're, you, your body's using it to um, strengthen the immune system, it has anti-aging effects, eliminates pathogens, and uh, yeah, just it's generally like a really good way to uh, heal and repair. And if you were to compare the regular three meals a day with something like one meal a day, or even like two meals a day, then you could see that like there's a significant difference in terms of the way autophagy could get expressed. So every, every time you eat or every time you spike your insulin, your body shuts down autophagy because uh, there's no like real need to have it turned on uh, once you've got access to calories and uh, food. So, you know, on a regular eating schedule, you eat breakfast, you spike your insulin, you shut down autophagy, you go into like this anabolic fed state of growth and uh, therefore you don't really get the chance to prolong this fasting ketosis state that uh, we go through during the nighttime uh, compared to if you were to skip breakfast or skip uh, one meal of the day or even two meals of the day, uh, then you would uh, quite easily prolong the, the period in which your body goes into autophagy as well as ketosis. And uh, it's uh, quite a quite a different uh, effect in terms of the overall uh, metabolic profile. And I would say that eating, eating only 
like uh, once a day or twice a day, there's no significant difference between them uh, in terms of the way autophagy gets, gets expressed. Uh, you can still get autophagy by fasting for like 12 hours a day, even if you combine it with some form of, uh, let's say, high intensity exercise or taking a sauna or something else like that. So there are, so there, there are also some ways of speeding up the process of autophagy without necessarily having to fast uh, for that long. Uh, for, like I said, saunas and exercise and uh, those sorts of things, these hormetic stressors, they can also uh, stimulate autophagy. So that's uh, like another biohack in a way. You, how do I gain the benefits of autophagy without having to fast for that long and uh, still make it work? Uh, but unfortunately, uh, studies by one of the researchers of circadian rhythm, Sachin Panta, uh, has discovered that uh, the average American tends to eat over the course of like 15 to 16 hours every day. So they basically, they eat from the moment they wake up all the way up until they go to bed. And uh, this is, uh, in my opinion, definitely not like really, let's say optimal. And uh, it does, I would say it does have like some negative side effects on metabolic health and uh, circadian rhythm alignment. And uh, disruptions in these circadian rhythms and chronobiology is uh, linked to many kinds of uh, diseases like uh, cardiovascular disease, hormonal imbalances. It can promote cardiovascular disease risk and sleep disorders. So it's almost like shift work. Like we know that shift work is a carcinogen and it's linked with many kinds of uh, diseases. And uh, yeah, like being misaligned with the circadian rhythms which I'm kind of guilty of at the moment, but uh, you know, chronic being chronically misaligned with them is going to cause problems. But uh, every once in a while, it's not going to be a problem as long as your body is, as long as your body is like entrained with the circadian rhythms, then you can really bounce back easily, and it's not going to have like a negative effect in the long term. And your body has like this higher resiliency against these disruptors. But if you don't have the resiliency, then um, it will have quite a negative effect in the in the long term. Um, the problem is also that these circadian rhythms, they become uh, less robust by default as you get older. So um, if you compare the uh, circadian oscillation between young and older individuals, then uh, the, as you get older, the oscillation or the variation in these rhythms get, gets uh, less pronounced and uh, they kind of dampen themselves so they become more stagnant there is now this high amplitude uh, as you get older like the same amplitude that you would have like when you're young like you're really active during daytime but you're also sleeping at the same time so younger pe older people tend to experience uh, less less sleep because of their they lose the ability to produce melatonin to a certain extent and uh, they also tend to sleep in let's say more irregular time periods so that's a, like a direct consequence of their body aging and uh, therefore the the robustness of their circadian machinery also gets less robust but fortunately there are some studies that this uh, negative uh, association can be reversed uh, with things like calorie restriction through uh, NAD metabolism. So calorie restriction improves NAD metabolism and uh, homeostasis 
So uh, with that, you can protect yourself against this um, this uh, lack of robustness that you experience uh, from from aging. Uh, but at the same time, we also found out that intermittent fasting mimics calorie restriction. So it has the same effect. Like uh, if uh, people were to practice this sort of time of eating on a consistent way, then uh, they would maintain this higher robustness in their circadian machinery. Like they would stay, uh, they would still be able to produce enough melatonin and they would also be able to maintain their sleep quality as a result of that. Uh, through calorie restriction or uh, intermittent fasting. But the problem with calorie restriction itself is that uh, it's it's quite difficult to pull off successfully in the long term. Like uh, if you if you were to restrict your calories for the rest of your life, then first of all, you would feel miserable. You wouldn't have like energy and you would also probably de develop some sort of for, form of a nutrient deficiencies compared to like intermittent fasting where those things aren't inherently... Uh, determined, like you can still eat uh, sufficient amount of calories, but if you do it in a time compressed manner, then you're still getting quite a lot of the health benefits of this uh, improved energy metabolism and circadian alignment without basically without uh, starving yourself. And NAD is uh, another critical component to longevity, and it's uh, one of the main coenzymes in the body that is uh, essentially involved with all physiological processes like DNA repair, uh, just cellular communication, uh, stem cells, autophagy, mitochondrial functioning, and yeah, like just, um, just energy production in general. So as you get older, your energy levels tend to drop as well uh, because of many reasons, like primarily oxidative stress and inflammation, but uh, this circadian misalignment also depletes NAD. So if you're misaligned with the circadian rhythms, then uh, you're kinda, your body has to expend more energy uh, on repair processes. And that's, that kind of consumes NAD. And therefore you go into this vicious feedback loop of you have low NAD, you don't have enough energy to repair yourself. And this in turn depletes more NAD and therefore it goes back in circles. But uh, fasting as well as color restriction uh, promote NAD production and they promote NAD uh, resynthesis or resalvaging. So you're kinda, you're, you, you kind of teach your body to recycle the NAD in a much more better way. And NAD is intrinsically connected with the circadian rhythms as well, uh, primarily through sirtuins. So sirtuins are these uh, longevity genes or silent information regulators that uh, turn on or turn off certain genes that control the circadian machinery as well as uh, NAD metabolism. So fasting, again, like fasting uh, also promote or time machine eating also promotes sirtuin activity. And this in turn helps with the recycling of NAD through this additional uh, enzyme NAMPT. And uh, as a result of that, you, you'll have like a better, um, better circadian profile. So there are different types of intermittent fasting or time machine eating, but the most popular one is the 16 and 8 method, where you fast for 16 hours and eat within 8 hours. And uh, as I said, there's no real difference between doing this sort of 16 and 8 type of fasting versus one meal a day. And the only difference is probably that you might experience, let's say, slightly more autophagy if you eat only once a day. But um, I think the difference is quite small. 
and it's not like, like not like that important either because uh, although Atafaj has its benefits, it also has negative side effects, which uh, most people aren't aware of. Like um, there are quite a lot of studies showing that some malignant cancers can also kind of hijack the process of Atafaj and uh, use it to uh, to their own benefit. So you don't want to have Atafaj turned on all the time because Atafaj is like this catabolic process that is uh, breaking down your tissue. So uh, you kind of want to balance it with uh, enough um, calories and especially with with enough protein to kind of maintain your lean muscle tissue. So that's why I think the Goldilocks zone can be achieved with uh, the minimal effective dose uh, can be achieved with this sort of time restricted eating where you fast for 16 hours and eat within eight hours. But there's also things like alternative fasting or extended fasting where you fast longer than 24 hours. And uh, that the effects of that would be primarily of just increased autophagy as well as a weight loss. And uh, you can't really do those things all the time. <laughs> you can do them every once in a while for like medicinal purposes. Uh, but uh, yeah, like there, you can't do them uh, consistently all the time. Uh, what about... Okay, let's talk about like what's what are the differences between early time restricted eating and late time restricted eating? Like, is it better to eat earlier in the day or is it better to eat later in the day? Uh, so as I said before, one of those studies where they compared this sort of early time restricted eating to, to the regular three meals a day saw that the compressed eating window improved blood glucose and insulin sensitivity and autophagy gene expression. Um, and yeah, it's, it is true. It, it, is, it is better than, let's say, having this very wide eating window where you eat over the course of like 12 hours and 13 hours, like the standard American diet, you eat from morning to bedtime. That's not like the best way of going about it. So there is some compression of the eating window is going to be generally better and healthier. Uh, but in other studies where they compare, where they compare eating early uh, versus late, they see no significant uh, difference. So in this study, uh, they took 15 people, they put them into two groups. The first, first week, uh, one group ate in the morning. They ate basically from, I think it was like from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the other group ate later in the day. They ate from like 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. So they one of the group ate breakfast and lunch and the other group ate lunch and dinner. And then they did that for a week they took a break from any kind of fasting for two weeks and uh, then they switched the ones who ate early ate now late and the ones who ate late now ate early and they're gonna eventually saw that there was no there was no significant difference between their uh, glucose homeostasis on glucose control uh, but if they were to compare uh, their results with a time when they weren't doing uh, time restricted eating, and then they, they saw that the results were still better compared to when they weren't doing it. Uh, so it kind of tells you that even some for, like it, it kind of tells you that it doesn't matter whether you eat slightly earlier or slightly later. And what matters is the compression of the eating window itself, uh, where all the magic happens, so to say. <laughs> if you spend more time in a fast state, then you're extending again the period where you experience uh, autophagy and uh, well, as well as energy and uh, sirtuins. 
uh, compared to when you're like spreading the entire uh, you're spreading the entire calorie intake across the entire day. But at the same time, autophagy itself also has a circadian rhythm, and uh, it's primarily processed the most uh, during uh, sleep, actually. So although you may be stimulating autophagy with things like fasting and exercise, your body naturally goes through it uh, while it's sleeping uh, around like the earlier parts of the night uh, where your body goes into deep sleep and releases things like growth hormone and melatonin. So they kind of all those, all, all those hormones work in conjunction with each other they kind of orc the body orchestrates uh, all these processes into deep sleep because it's like uh, the best time to do it. Like you're in this low metabolic state, you're not really burning energy that much and uh, you kind of allow your body to kind of repair because it, it wouldn't make sense to start repairing itself uh, during daytime while it's running away from predators or something. So when you're sleeping, that's where all the kind of recovery takes place. Coming up and, on time, Sim, just letting you know. Yeah, I have just a few slides left. Uh, and basically, yeah, like melatonin it kind of self is central to the circadian rhythm regulation. Uh, it controls all the clock genes. It controls sirtuins. It controls energy metabolism. And it also controls autophagy. And melatonin is like an antioxidant as well as a sleep hormone. Uh, so yeah, that's why it's quite paramount to still ensure that you get enough uh, sleep, especially in the right time in the, in the circadian uh, alignment manner. And the uh, growth hormone also gets released primarily during sleep. So that's another example where your body is consolidating all these processes into sleep. And, uh, and yeah, therefore, therefore I kind of make some conclusions in terms of uh, what are some of the principles to keep in mind when to time your eating window. So first of all, you should wait like at least a few hours after waking up before you start eating, because in the morning, cortisol starts rising and cortisol is the stress hormone, uh, which is supposed to kind of kickstart the day and kickstart the circadian rhythm and to wake up your body. And uh, with, especially with like sunlight, sunlight hitting your skin and hitting your eyes stimulates the circadian clocks to kind of wake up and uh, align the body with the circadian, circadian rhythms. But the problem is also that you don't really want to be eating with high amounts of cortisol because um, like I said, it's a stress hormone and that can predispose you to weight gain that can, um, that can inhibit some um, insulin sensitivity. So uh, it's better to kind of wait at least a few hours uh, before you eat as to allow the cortisol to drop. Uh, secondly, you should also stop eating a few hours before bed because um, like I said, melatonin is important for promoting sleep as well as a circadian alignment. And uh, therefore you don't really want to be um, having to have too much digestion going on when you go to sleep because that's going to inhibit melatonin production and therefore uh, decrease sleep quality as well. So the kind of guide, general guideline would be to wait maybe like at, at least like three to four hours before you go to bed to stop eating. And lastly, it's not, it's not a good idea to have snacks all the time either. And it's, be, it's generally better to have like a smaller eating window because 
uh, with the snacks uh, with high eating frequency like breakfast lunch and dinner uh, then you're essentially keeping your insulin spiked throughout the entire day especially if you're eating like a the standard american diet with high amounts of carbs it's less of a it's less of an issue on a low carb diet but yeah generally still um snacking in general would uh, also interfere with uh, autophagy production and so on so you would want to just have like regular meals uh, like two three meals in a compressed manner or one meal depending on depending on your choice and definitely like no you shouldn't even eat at night time and if i were to kind of give this sort of an optimal meal timing uh, then it would include kickstarting the cortisol and kickstarting the circadian rhythm around 5 to 7 a.m then fasting for a few hours like four to eight hours and uh, eat, start, you start eating around like 10 to 12 a.m which is going to shift your body into like an anabolic state of growth and uh, then you eat over the course of like four to eight hours until sunset and uh, once the kind of sun has set then that's sort of, sort of a cue that uh, nighttime is coming and therefore your body starts to prepare for sleep by releasing melatonin and uh, you kind of also inhibit or then you should also stop eating and uh, generally you wait at least like at least four hours uh, before you go to bed when you stop eating and uh, lastly sleep itself is also quite subject, sub subjective uh, but generally like six to eight hours tends to be the optimal amount for sleep and that's where your body's gonna releases melatonin autology and uh, promotes recovery so that's kind of my presentation so yeah thanks for listening and yeah kind of the main idea is that some form of innovative fasting is great for just getting the health benefits and uh, aligning yourself with the circadian rhythms which has quite a lot of like anti-aging effects as well on your body in addition to just uh, weight loss all right amazing thank you so much for that awesome presentation i know for sure we all want to know how you eat uh, what you eat and also your timing um and as well as paul so paul if you can uh join in on this fun conversation we're now transitioning over into the q a portion uh we have about 30 minutes left but uh, i do want to say that so in the spirit of the whole carnivore idea and um i've definitely gone mostly carnivore uh yesterday i broke my fast at 4 p.m i know that's not ideal with your 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 timing um that you had just mentioned seem but uh i broke my fast with a big steak and i tried to eat another steak later for dinner and i just i walked out i looked at the steak i was like i don't think i could eat this i'm just so full i just had no hunger in me but i know that steak tastes great so um I think that's a, a great thing about eating fatty cuts of steak that you can eat it and then it's just so satiating. But okay, so um, can you take us a little um, through your diet and what you eat on a daily basis, uh, Seem? Uh, yeah, uh, I do like to eat some sort of like a low carb ketogenic diet uh, because like you said, <laughs> fatty cuts of steak are pretty satiating and it's really easy to uh, I find it really easy to fast with that and you yeah. kind of don't have hunger because you're tapping into ketosis and you're using your own body fat for fuel most of the time. So uh, I like to eat, uh, I do implement like nose to tail uh, foods, but I also implement some plants, vegetables, that sort of things. 
uh, we have our own chicken, so chickens, uh, so we have eggs, and uh, we grow a lot of our own herbs and those sort of things. So yeah, I'm quite fortunate in that way. Uh, but yeah, I do eat low carb keto keto uh, with meats, organ meats, eggs, fish, and uh, some berries, vegetables, and that sort of thing. Cool, uh, Paul, you're muted, but. Uh... Sounds carnivore-ish. A lot of carnivore-ish. That's amazing. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Do you so guys Paul, want to hear about, is this the question for me? My diet? Yeah, yeah. I wanna, we all want to know like how you eat. When do you break your fast? How? What's your fasting schedule? Meal timing? Yeah, yeah. I love that kind of stuff. It's so interesting understanding when the autophagy lever actually gets switched and how we can leverage all that. And I prefer to eat in the morning and in the afternoon and then skip dinner. I, um, I, I just, I love skipping dinner. I just don't, I don't like eating after 4 PM. I just think it's, uh, mm. it's an interesting thing. So I'll eat breakfast at eight or eight 30 or nine when I, you know, when I have a break in the morning from working and then mm. I'll eat probably a, a lunch dinner around two or three or three 30 and I eat two meals a day. What time um, are you waking up? Sorry. Um, depends on the day, maybe mm. six 30 or seven. So okay. I usually get up and meditate and hang out and move around a little bit and mm -hmm. don't eat breakfast right when I get up. I kind of wait for the hunger cue, but I will eat mm -hmm. breakfast in the morning. Yeah. Well, the reason why I personally uh, like push off food as much as possible is because I sit down a lot, um, like emailing, coding websites. So it requires a lot of just stationary me sitting it's kind of sedentary. Right. And so my whole philosophy was, okay, don't eat and then sit. Cause then that's probably not good. Right. Um, I'll open that up to you guys. What do you guys think of eating then sitting, but also probably depends on what you're eating, right? And then sitting. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. Like um, if you eat like uh, this sort of food that makes you uncomfortable, then it's going to be more detrimental to your uh, digestion uh, while sitting. And generally some easy movement like going for a walk helps with the digestion and uh, lowers insulin as well. So that's probably one of those reasons you don't want to be eating like a massive amount of food before bed because you're like you're gonna you're gonna lay down on your back for the entire night and that's that can just make it uh, hard for your body to digest it and maybe like just uh, you you may like not digest the food at all and leave some like undigested food particles into the system and that sort of thing so yeah like mm. like I I do like to like take walks around meals and uh, kind of help with the digestion. Would, do you think that that would um, uh, make you more prone to adiposity if you're eating and then sitting? Or does it not, like, let's say, or also, like, if you're eating a steak, let's say you're only eating carnivore, is it okay right. to eat and then sit? Uh, yeah, like, yeah, depend, I think it depends on the amount of food as well and the, the amount of calories. And, yeah, like, I would say that, like, just processed food would be worse because if you, if you spike your insulin higher with, like, a high amount of carbs, then that will, and you start to sit, then you don't move around, you don't lower your blood glucose and insulin, then you, the, 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 the negative effects would be greater than compared to something like steak, because with a steak, you don't really, you don't see like a massive spike in insulin, and therefore it, it doesn't need to be kind of lowered either that much. Okay. Uh, I do want to also touch on sarcopenia. I know that's a, a big topic for people. I mean, my father, I lost my father in 2017. He had type 2 diabetes, and then he had complications um, from that that led to heart disease. He never exercised, but he 
he quote unquote ate healthy. I mean, I thought whatever he was eating was healthy, but he never exercised. And that's really what led him down this road. And I saw him and, you know, I, I was able to see him in the two weeks before he passed away and his body was like a shell of a man. And so my, my whole mission is to not end up like him. And so I'm trying to learn as much as possible about how to stave off sarcopenia. Is sarcopenia inevitable? Can we reverse it? Is this something that, um, yeah. So uh, can you talk a little bit about sarcopenia? Yeah. Sarcopenia is uh, just age real muscle loss that uh, I think it happens primarily because of uh, disuse. You're not really using your muscles as well as uh, poor diets, not eating enough protein, not eating enough uh, nutrient-dense foods. And uh, it's, it's certainly, you can, at least you can slow it down greatly. Like there is some natural decrease in muscle mass that occurs because of like lower testosterone and lower growth hormone. But um, a lot of it can be, can be slowed down and prevented with like staying active throughout your entire lifetime and especially doing resistance training, uh, not like cardio and those sort of things, because uh, although running is great for cardiovascular health and those sort of things, but you don't really build muscle with it or maintain it. So if you're only doing cardio, cardiovascular exercise, then uh, you can still experience sarcopenia. So that's why resistance training, whether that be with like weights, calisthenics, uh, kettlebells, whatever it may be, even like gardening and uh, like, you know, just staying physically active, all those things are quite mandatory, especially as you get older. And yeah, like that has to be coupled with a, like a, with a quality diet as well. And I do think that a higher protein diet is uh, beneficial for preventing sarcopenia as well as uh, slowing it down because uh, your body also loses some of its ability to utilize protein uh, as you get older. So yeah, like, a carnivore diet with some resistance training is uh, probably pretty good for uh, preventing sarcopenia. And Paul, uh, what's your plan to stave off sarcopenia as much as possible? Kick ass, man. Stay yeah. radical. Um, so there's, you know, there's that interesting switch that people talk about, the muscle protein synthesis switch. Is there a magic number for leucine? A lot of people put it about 2.6 grams of leucine in a meal, which is kind of an interesting number because for many Americans or even people throughout the world, you know, if you think you're, if you want to prevent sarcopenia, I think about my parents, my mom and dad are both 70 years old. You know, how many of our parents are getting 2.6 grams of leucine twice a day or three times a day? Uh, I think as we age, we should aim to get that number frequently, which brings us back to um, sort of nutrient adequacy, amino acid ratios and net uh, nitrogen utilization of animal versus plant foods. But what we know is that you can eat three to four ounces of red meat and get 2.6 grams of leucine, but you'd have to eat a mountain of rice and beans. <laughs> you could get it with plant foods, but you would have to eat a whole lot more of them. And I do think that despite James Wilkes' assertion that the DIAS, the digestible and dispensable amino acid score is inaccurate, I think that his characterization that of that is, is false and it's, it's a pretty darn accurate test. And, and you can look at the DIAS for animal foods versus plant foods and see that that plant foods are much less bioavailable. So it may not even be apples to apples when we're comparing leucine to leucine. The leucine in, in plant foods might even, might be half as worthwhile or only worth half as much as the leucine in animal foods. And we don't really know, but what we'd wanna do is trigger muscle protein synthesis as often as we can. And we can do that through diet or through resistance exercise. So you can imagine like for my mom, who's a 70 year old woman who has osteoporosis, I'm thinking, how do I get her to eat 2.6 grams of leucine two to three times a day. In the morning, she'll have like an egg or two 
Mm-hmm. It's probably not enough mm-hmm. leucine, right? Thinking, ah, you know, it's hard. Like our parents don't want to eat four ounces of meat three times a day, but that's really a functional strategy that you could use. Like what is your 2.6 gram of leucine number? And that number is based on volume of distribution, not body weight. So that's pretty much a pretty solid number, whether you're 6'3 or 5'2, because the volume of distribution of your blood doesn't really change. So you think about that and resistance exercise, and I think that's the way to do it, which means, you know, countering that or taking that in in connection with like a time-restricted eating strategy, you might think about eating two or three times during that that eight-hour window or that seven-hour window with at least, you know, that trigger, that muscle protein synthesis trigger during that time, and then doing some resistance exercise, and then you'll get, you'll just always be stimulating the muscle. So are you having, uh, just curious, because you bring up your parents and I also, you know, I'm dealing with my mom. Are your parents, do you find them to be eating healthier because you're on this track and you're preaching the, the gospel of carnivore? I definitely do. It's interesting. You know, my father's an internal medicine doctor mm. and I've always respected him, revered him my whole life. And it was fun for me having him help me edit my book. And mm. I think that he's, mm. he's, he's, he's seeing a lot of the things that he was taught and a lot of his paradigms challenged and he's pretty open to that he's not eating perfectly but he's eating a lot more grass-fed beef and i got him to do some desiccated liver pills and wonderful i think my parents are eating more grass-fed beef which you know mainstream medicine will tell them is bad for them and and i would tell them is crucial for their long-term health so um, i think it's good that we can challenge those ideals and Mm. and think like one of us is wrong either mainstream medicine's wrong or i'm wrong (laughs) we're gonna hopefully we'll find out yeah, lucky for you. My parents will listen to me or my mom won't listen to me. She's like, I'm going to eat what I want to eat. You do what you want to do and I'll do what I want to do. And it's so hard. Oh, God, oh. it's very frustrating. Yeah. All right. Uh, John, do you yeah. want to jump in here? Sure. Getting to that, Dr. Paul, um, in terms of there were, there were a few questions. I'll summarize a lot of them, but ranking animal protein, kind of the nutrient, um, you know, how, how nutrient dense animal proteins are. And then also talking about dairy a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. So I think when I, when I think about animal protein, you have to separate it into muscle meat and organ meat and realize right. that all the organs have a unique nutritional profile. And just like you wouldn't eat exclusively spleen and only spleen all day, every day, we probably shouldn't be eating only muscle meat all day, every day. And, you know, I heard Seem talk about nose tail and I've heard you guys mention nose tail it's a concept that's familiar to most people, but I just want to emphasize that I think that when we're thinking about muscle protein at the, at the risk of using a bad, you know, a bad, a bad analogy, it's like, it's like peanut butter and jelly, you know, liver and, you know, organ meats and muscle meat go together very well in terms of nutrient adequacy and nutrient sort of completeness. So I, I prefer red meat, but I think that white meat like chicken or pork is also very nutrient rich. Um, muscle meat, but that no matter what we're doing, I think we need to consider eating the organs of those animals. If you look at chicken liver versus beef liver, beef liver seems to be better in many respects, but I think that as long as we're getting nose to tail animals, no matter what animals we're eating, we'll be pretty good. But I personally favor ruminant animals. uh, And I like their meat more than the meat of uh, monogastric animals like pigs or chickens, things like that. You also mentioned in your Marxist podcast uh, that methionine and what was it? Glycine. Glycine. Those two co- together are critically like they're, they're supposed to be eaten together. And uh, can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, that gets a little bit granular. I'll try and I'll try and break it down. So if you look at the amount of methionine and glycine, that ratio, we've always known that ratio is important. And there were a series of experiments in the 60s and 70s done with mice that are often cited by proponents of plant-based diets or 
people who are against animal-based diets saying that methionine restriction was beneficial for longevity or that methionine overfeeding was damaging for rats. But what they don't talk about is that when you add enough glycine to balance the methionine, you see longevity effects. So you see sort of uh, removal of the negative effects of excess methionine and you see return to longevity when there's enough glycine. So it's not so much that methionine is dangerous like um, many plant-based pundits might suggest. Methionine is a crucial amino acid that is um, methylated. You know, We need it in part of the methylation cycle. We need methionine. Homocysteine becomes methionine when it is methylated by uh, L-methylfolate as part of the folate cycle. We need methionine, but too much methionine without glycine is a problem, probably because those amino acids buffer each other. When there's too much methionine or too many methyl groups, specifically SAMe or S-adenosylmethionine, our body uses glycine to buffer that and it becomes sarcosine. Now that's a problem because glycine is this key building block in multiple proteins in the human body, specifically glut tissue, right? glutathione and collagen. Okay. They're both three amino acids. Glutathione is kind of this master antioxidant in the human body, at least endogenous antioxidant. All connective tissue is made from collagen, which is at least a third glycine. It's three amino acids. So if you look at muscle meat, there's some collagen in there, but it's a little bit different composition. Muscle meat is about 2% methionine and 7% glycine. Collagen is about 0.5% methionine and 27% glycine. So you can imagine that if you're going to balance out, if you were going to eat an animal, you know, if you're going to eat an animal nose to tail, like our ancestors appear to have, they're going to eat all the connective tissue, whether by boiling it or eating it, because they're eating all the calories. They're eating all the stomach and the intestines and all this collagenous tissue that we're not familiar with. So we know that the ratio of methionine to glycine is probably more than, you know, one to three. If you're thinking, you know, 2% to 7% in muscle meat, you need a little more glycine than that, meaning that you need a little more than three times the amount of glycine for every gram of methionine you eat. So, but it's probably, you don't need 50 times more like you might in collagen. So if you extrapolate, we think like, well, what would you get if you were eating an animal nose to tail? You might get for every one gram of methionine, you might get 10 grams of glycine, something like that, or eight grams of glycine. So that, that ratio somewhere in that ballpark is probably what we need as humans. The functionality of it means that if you eat bone broth or you eat connective tissue, you're going to get more glycine rich foods and you're probably going to be fine. But if you only eat muscle meat, is there a potential that you will get too much methionine and not enough glycine? I believe there is. You could measure that by looking at sarcosine or looking at other products of biochemistry that get a little bit kind of granular, but you don't want to have too much methionine relative to your glycine, which is why Mark is such a big fan of collagen. I'm such a big fan of collagen. Making bone broth is great. Getting connective tissue on joints is very valuable for humans. Yeah. He calls it the fourth macronutrient, right? Yeah. 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 And I think that in a way that's, you know, it, it's a, it's a wise thing to say. Just imagine that an animal is almost half connective tissue that we're not eating. So get those tendons. Yeah. Can you, can you finish up on dairy and it's specifically a one, a two dairy. I, I love when you kind of review that for people. Sure. Sure. So one of the things that's been fascinating for me is understanding, or at least beginning to appreciate bioindividuality and how people might be different. Personally, I've tried so hard to have dairy in my diet because it's delicious. And, yeah. and every time I do it, whether it's raw, A1, A2, goat, sheep, whatever, magic, you know, like angel milk, I, I still get eczema and autoimmunity and 
flaky skin and itchy skin and uh, my eczema flares a little bit, no matter what I do. So I'm not sure that dairy works for me immunologically. Some have suggested that A2 dairy might be less immunogenic than A1 dairy. And that's referring to an isoform of the casein molecule. Casein, it can be A1 casein or A2 casein. Different cows have a slightly different sequence of this protein. A1 casein gets broken down into beta casomorphine 7. In associational observational studies, increased intakes of beta casomorphine 7 have been associated with increased incidence of autoimmunity. So that's the concern. You know, is A1 dairy more immunogenic for people? In the carnivore code and in my cookbook, which will be out later this year, for those that tolerate A2 dairy, for those that tolerate dairy, A2 is probably preferable in goat or buffalo. The majority of cows in the U.S. are going to produce A1 casein milk, but there are certainly cows out there that have A2. But if you can tolerate dairy, I think it's a very nutritious food, and you just have to kind of be sensitive to your own body's reaction to it. Negative reactions are sometimes mood, sometimes weight gain, sometimes satiety problems, sometimes autoimmune issues, things like that. People will usually know if they're sensitive to dairy. Most people, I think, would benefit from doing some amount of time without it and then reintroduction to see how they feel. And there are ways to get calcium without dairy on a carnivore diet or on an animal-based diet, even on a paleo diet. Specifically, I think it gets back to the kind of this ecosystem's perspective. If you make bone broth with bones that are trabecular, meaning the the long bones, the end of long bones, not the shaft of long bones, but the end of long bones. When you take them out of the water, you'll have collagenous matrix in the water, but you can also eat the bone because it becomes soft. So you can actually eat the bones and wow. you can eat rib bones and you can eat the marrow in the rib bones. There's red marrow in the rib bones. So it feels pretty primal to do that. It's kind of fun. How, how, much, how much would you recommend eating? I mean, generally speaking, or, or how much calcium are we going to get? You know what I mean? Should we eat the whole bone or... A There's a lot of calcium there. in bones. There's a lot of calcium in bones. You know, if you, it, it's difficult to say the RDA for calcium for most people is going to be a couple of grams of calcium, which, you know, would be a couple of bites of bone would give you plenty of calcium. A lot of people think that you should consider balancing your calcium and your phosphorus. That's kind of something that is familiar to veterinarians and veterinary medicine, the calcium phosphorus balance. We don't think about it so much in uh, Western medicine, but you know, there's a little bit of phosphorus in bones. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if you get a couple of grams of bone, you'll be fine in terms of your calcium phosphorus balance. So it's not much, you don't have to eat a whole bone, but a couple of bites of bone a day is going to be plenty for most people. Bone meal is bone meal is good too, but you have to be careful with the source of the bone meal. Like David was talking about earlier. Um, it can have heavy metals and stuff in it as well. So, well, no matter what kind of bones you're eating, you want to make sure they're from good cows. Awesome. Um, question about fermentation um so fermenting certain vegetables and simland maybe you can jump in here um but does fermenting vegetables take out the plant toxins that are so dangerous for our health it appears to take out some of them yeah mm -hmm. which is fascinating that glucosinolates which are the precursor to isothiocyanates are at least partially or mostly degraded by fermentation so the, the interesting position there is that perhaps our ancestors fermented plants to make them more tolerable. And that's what them, we do. To make them less toxic, right? So yeah. you can take a brassica vegetable like a cabbage and make it into kimchi or make it into sauerkraut. Um, the spices in kimchi that are um, uh, like the capsicum spices may be problematic for some people, but you know, regardless of that, 
fermented brassica vegetables are, are not going to have sulforaphane. They're not going to have the precursors, the glucosinolates. So yeah, the fermentation, fermentation also destroys polyphenols in cocoa or cacao. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's a, I think it makes vegetables more, uh, less toxic to humans. Now you have to think like, basically what you're doing is creating a calorie source, right? Um, which is more palatable. And I think in a way it almost argues like, okay, maybe they're fallback foods and in a pinch, this is how you make them more, more palatable for humans. Arguments remain and lots of people have questions about, well, is the fermentation process beneficial? Do we need those bacteria? I'm not convinced. I think it's still an open discussion. Um, I have heard some concerns about overconsumption of acetic acid and acidic mixtures like sauerkraut being hard on the enamel of our teeth. So I think there are mm. potential downsides to fermented foods as well. So we have to be a little careful of that. Kombucha, I'm not sure that it's completely benign. Yeah, definitely. I think it uh, does uh, to a certain extent. I think the fermented foods, like plant fermented foods especially, would help to digest plants better because you're kind of creating this sort of a microbiome that is more directed towards uh, like a plant-based uh, digestion, so to say. So if you're eating like more high, higher amounts of vegetables and plants, then the fermented vegetables would help to digest the plants better. Uh, they may have like less of, less of an effect on uh, like a carnivore diet because you're not eating like uh, that much plant matter. So yeah, like depends on the diet itself. But yeah, like fermented foods do have also like like uh, like K2, high amounts of K2 and other nutrients. So they're also useful for that. But uh, at the same time, a person has to pay attention to their like histamine tolerance. So if, uh, if they have some problems with histamine uh, or FODMAPs, then like, yeah, I wouldn't recommend eating a bunch of fermented foods. Like it's still something to take in moderation and uh, not uh, overdo it. But yeah, generally I do like to eat we do ferment our own vegetables as well, like pickles and uh, kimchi and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. yeah, I do like it. That's what I'm left to eat these days is steak, kimchi, and a little bit of rice. That's what I'm allowing myself. <laughs> um, okay, John, did you uh, want to jump in with a question from the Q&A? Yeah, uh, one question. People were talking, asking about fiber. What about the role of fiber? Mm -hmm. I know that's a hot topic. You have a whole chapter in your book devoted to that. Yeah the high level i think that'd be really valuable for people yeah yeah so um i would encourage people to check out my book the carnivore code there's a whole discussion in there about fiber fiber is complex and it's a deep rabbit hole um when we think about fiber we think usually we think about constipation and pooping people might also think about diverticulosis they might also think about cancer they might also think about the microbiome so i'll address each of those quickly um if you actually look at the data uh fiber does not prevent constipation and the absence of fiber does not lead to constipation. And I will provide photographic proof to all of you tomorrow that I have perfect poops <laughs> on a daily basis with absolutely zero fiber in my diet for the last two years. So um, if you look at fiber in, in, in the medical literature, fiber will increase the bulk of a stool and will increase the frequency of having a bowel movement. But fiber doesn't really help with pain with passing stools, bleeding with passing stools, or the need to use a laxative, which makes make up sort of a comprehensive definition of constipation. Constipation is probably much more complicated than an absence of fiber. Sometimes it's methane producing bacteria overgrowth, sometimes it's mechanical, sometimes it's sluggish bowels, dysmotility related to insulin resistance, it's complicated. But there's a large body of medical literature to suggest that fiber is not probably a panacea for constipation and giving people tons of psyllium or Miralax 
uh, which is not actually fiber, but giving people tons of insoluble fiber is not the way you solve constipation necessarily. There are many people, and there's a pretty well-known study that I cite in the book that shows that many people with idiopathic constipation, meaning no known cause, resolve completely when fiber is 100% eliminated from their diet. So fiber and constipation is a much more nuanced story than we've been led to believe. Fiber and diverticulosis is similarly sort of a, a Pied Piper's tale, uh, probably starting with Dennis Burkett in the 1970s, going to Africa and seeing uh, a lower incidence of um, uh, diverticulosis, which is the outpouching of the mucosal layer of the colon through the muscularis layers, uh, and people who are eating lots of fiber and having voluminous poops, but also not eating processed food or vegetable oils or anything else. So this is the common error that we make in Western medicine is we, 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 we are absolutely sure that we know what correlation is due to. And we, we try and make a causative inference when in fact, it's probably not the thing. If you look at other studies, there's really no correlation between, well, it's actually a negative correlation between increasing amounts of fiber, or actually I should say positive correlation, increasing amounts of fiber and increasing amounts of diverticulosis. So it's pretty clear that fiber doesn't prevent diverticulosis. And in some people, we might even generate a hypothesis that fiber worsens diverticulosis potentially in some people by leading to dysbiosis or the wrong type of bacteria. Fiber in cancer is pretty much an open and shut case. There were a series of study published in the New England Journal of Medicine and other journals from 99, 2000, and 2001, showing that despite increasing fiber in fruits and vegetables, despite increasing fiber in a cereal supplement, there was no change in the recurrence or incidence of pre-cancerous lesions in the colon called adenomas by colonoscopy series of over, I think probably total over 8,000 patients. One of those studies got extended for eight years. They did eight years of fiber inclusion and they still saw no improvement in the recurrence of cancer with fiber. Uh, so eating fiber doesn't prevent cancer in the colon and the absence of fiber. We can't say that that leads to cancer in the colon either. The last one is probably the most um, challenging. It's the microbiome. And I think that this one again is a little nuanced because people will say, don't you need fiber for short chain fatty acids? And the answer is a resounding no. There are many short chain fatty acids that can be produced without fiber in the colon. And there's evidence that even animal products like our favorite collagen can also be fermented into short chain fatty acids. Mm -hmm. Short chain fatty acids are butyrate, propionate, acetate, things like this, isobutyrate. They're used by the cells of the colonic epithelium, the large bowel for fuel. Mm -hmm. So if we're eating a ketogenic diet, we can also use beta hydroxybutyrate from the bloodstream for those cells. And indeed when butyrate moves across the membrane of colonic epithelial cells, it turns into beta hydroxybutyrate in those cells. If we're not eating a carnivore diet or we're not eating a ketogenic diet, then you know there are many things in our diet that can turn into these short chain fatty acids that can activate the same receptors as butyrate. Isobutyrate can do the same thing. Protein can do it and collagen can do it. So the idea that, that plant fiber, that cellulose, hemicellulose, lignans, gums, things like this are needed to make short chain fatty acids is uh, a myopic view. In terms of microbial diversity, it's very clear that um, alpha diversity of the colon or the colonic and the small intestinal microflora is not improved by including plant fiber in our diet and doesn't decrease when we, when we remove it. There's actually a seven day study at Harvard University looking at a totally animal-based diet with no fiber. And there was no change in the alpha diversity of the microbiome of those people. Most will say, oh, that's not enough time, but we know the microbiome shifts pretty darn fast. And seven days is almost an eternity when it comes to a dietary shift in the microbiome. So to not see any change in the alpha diversity suggests nah, fiber doesn't change the alpha diversity of our diet, of our microbiome. To get a diverse microbiome, it's not about eating tons of fiber or many different plants. 
it's probably about other things. And there's crosstalk between probably the immune system and our lamina propria that are on the other side of the endothelial wall of the gut and the microbiome inside the gut. And uh, low diversity in the gut has been correlated with many inflammatory conditions. It's probably a bi-directional relationship. The food we eat is probably only a very small fraction of what determines our microbiota diversity. Anyone who says that you need lots and lots of plants to get lots and lots of diversity in your gut probably hasn't considered the research as carefully as they should have. Well, that's the that's what everyone's being told. So uh, thank God we're having this show. Okay, so uh, we're going to move into kind of a lightning round because uh, we're coming up on time and there are uh, a couple of really awesome questions from the group. So leaky gut and autoimmune issues are a primary concern for many people trying to switch to carnivore. Uh, Christian says, I've searched online for case studies reversing leaky gut and so far I haven't been able to find any evidence of improvement seems widespread and positive, but can you comment on whether carnivore just helps people avoid le leaky gut and autoimmune issues or can it actually help fix them? If you look at paleo medicina in Hungary, I think they have the best data on reversing leaky, nut, leaky gut um, with a carnivore diet, with an animal-based diet. The problem with leaky gut is it's more of a colloquial term than a formal medical term, and we don't have any great perfect test for it. There's lactulose mannitol testing, there's PEG 400 testing, there's stool zonulin, and there's serum zonulin. Of those, I think probably the best is either lactulose mannitol ratio or PEG 400. Paleo medicine in Hungary has done a number of tests with PEG 400, which is a large molecule, um, and shown that you can get normalization of uh, PEG 400 testing with transition to a animal-based diet. So it's out there. The problem is that we don't really have a metric to use to test it. Mm -hmm. So stool zonulin is a pretty horrible one. Lactulose mannitol testing is rarely done. So it, it's out there. It's just mostly PEG 400 and not a lot of people have done it in the US. And it's kind of a clinical thing anyway. If you see resolution of the clinical symptoms, then you can say, oh, well, things are probably getting better mm -hmm. or resolution of GI symptoms. Cool. Uh, question for Seamland. Um, would it make sense to sleep biphasic to allow more deeper sleep for less time to decrease atrophy to skeleton system? I do know that, uh, or I've read articles saying that we used to, we've come from a biphasic sleep kind of model. And then we've, ever since the advent of modern culture, when the candle was invented, people are staying up later, then, then the whole um, sleeping like eight hours came to came to light. But before that, before we had candlelight, we were all sleeping two phases. Yeah, like there is maybe some reasons to think that uh, we we weren't used to sleeping only like uh, eight hours a night all the time, <laughs> because that wouldn't really make sense if you were to sleep in like the savannah. So there probably is some form of uh, this uh, biphasic, biphasic uh, aspects that we did in the past, like maybe maybe just you know sleeping for four hours a night then staying up a little bit like guarding the campfire or, or whatnot mm -hmm. and then having like at least some naps during the daytime and even like modern hunting gatherers they do exhibit some form of this polyphasic sleeping um, in some shape or form um, i also did it in the past like i, I like for over 100 days i did wow. you know i did sleep for uh four hours a day uh, with like this sort of naps uh, consolidated throughout the entire day. That's uh, like that Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is 20 so, minute naps all day. Yeah, like something like that. And it is it's somewhat difficult, uh, but you get used to it after a while. But I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that healthy. Uh, like uh, sleep deprivation itself is 
linked with like many health problems like diabetes and insulin resistance and Alzheimer's and so the thing. So I wouldn't do it all the time uh, consistently. And it also depends on what you're doing uh, with the time that you are active. So like if you are like trying to get stronger or build muscle and progress at the gym, then it's going to be naturally much harder uh, to do that with uh, some form of a biphasic sleep schedule um, uh, compared to like uh, sleeping for eight hours and such. But uh, at the same time, you can still implement a, like a like a easy easier variation of it, which is like the siesta sleep basically, and uh, that's pr the the most common form of polyphasic sleeping in the world, where like people they sleep at night, but they also have like a nap in the afternoon, like in Spain and these Mediterranean countries, where it's pretty common. And naps themselves are quite useful for lo lowering stress, uh, improving recovery, and getting like this additional. Uh, like a semi-REM cycle uh, that would enable your, your body to still recover. And you you do need, like, if you were to sleep only for, like, eight hours a night or, like, around that time, then you would go through approximately uh, three to five REM cycles. And uh, and that's that's probably the amount you do need per 24-hour period. And you, you could dissect them into different parts of the day that you don't necessarily have to have all those REM cycles in a linear fashion, uh, right after each other, you could have like two REM cycles at night and two REM cycles at day or something like that. So uh, it's not inherently uh, damaging to do this sort of a biphasic sleeping, uh, but it's still somewhat harder to pull off uh, completely. Okay, John, do you wanna ask the final question? Yeah, I got a question from Christian in Miami. Are there nootropics like ashwagandha or holy basil? This is for Dr. Paul or even supplements that you would recommend, even if a carnivore diet is part of the lifestyle he adopts? Are there any, I guess, general question, any supplements you would recommend if you're doing carnivore? I guess it would depend on if it's carnivore-ish or nose-to-tail carnivore, right? <laughs> Maybe. Well, I'm, I'm a minimalist. Um, and I sort of believe that everything comes at a cost. And I think nootropics are no different. I think that if we're under a high stress situation and we want to use a nootropic like caffeine or Huperzine A, uh, it's going to have a cost and we should just be aware of that. Um, I think in terms of supplements, I think, is, are there any supplements that I believe are va valuable for humans long-term? Uh, I think that it depends what we consider to be a supplement. I think for a lot of people, organ meats are supplements and that would be a great supplement. Collagen might be a supplement maybe Redmond real salt or, you know, a well-sourced mineral salt as a supplement. But other than that, um, I, I don't think that humans really need it if they're constructing the diet properly. Um, so I think that that's, that's how I feel about it. And I like having the least number of supplements possible. I do think there are medicines out there and, you know, things like psilocybin or any of these other nootropics, we can use them as medications, but for chronic use, um, I'm not convinced that there's a whole lot out there, which is quite, uh, quite contrary many other people. Gosh, there were so many questions that we didn't get to touch on psilocybin oh. and vitamin C. Jeez. Okay. Well, I, I can say vitamin C in a couple of words if you want. Oh, yes, please. Let's, let's yeah. do that. That's a good one to end on. Yeah. So I think that vitamin C is fascinating and vitamin C is the sort of the elephant in the room with a carnivore diet. The first thing I'll say is that vitamin C is present in animal foods in totally adequate amounts to prevent scurvy. And there are many studies to show that, that, that humans only need maybe 10 milligrams or less per day of 
vitamin C to prevent scurvy. Now the question then becomes, is more vitamin C than is needed to prevent scurvy beneficial for humans from an antioxidant perspective? Vitamin C does a number of things in the human body. The most commonly referenced one is regeneration of glutathione uh, at the aqueous layer of the cell membrane. Um, and there are a number of things that can do that. So we don't know how much vitamin C is needed to regenerate, to glu regenerate glutathione uh, or regenerate vitamin E in the membrane. But if you look at the literature, it, it, a lot of it is done in people who are diabetic or insulin resistant, and they might be able to show that 70 milligrams of vitamin C is better than 30 milligrams of vitamin C. But I referenced the study earlier today in which, you know, an improvement in the, well, not an improvement, but a change in the diet that led to uh, an increase in vitamin C from 7-0 to 270 milligrams of vitamin C, despite increasing blood levels of vitamin C, 30% led to no changes in markers of oxidative stress, DNA damage, or inflammation. So I think that we don't fully understand how much vitamin C is needed to be optimal, which is nearly apostasy. It's nearly heretical to suggest that, that we may not need a thousand or 5,000 or even 500 milligrams of vitamin C per day. But I think from an evolutionary perspective, that would be a very uh, improbable thing. Uh, despite the fact that we're all imagining that citrus fruits were going on, growing on trees all the time everywhere, they really weren't. And I think vitamin C is much less aware, much less present in the natural world than we've been led to believe. Um, even on a seasonal basis. So my suspicion, my hypothesis is that well-raised animal foods and animal organs probably provide plenty of vitamin C for humans to be optimal from an antioxidant perspective. And you could test that by looking at your glutathione. You can test that by looking at your lipid peroxides. You can test that by looking at DNA damage. When I've done that study on myself and other clients that I have, they don't appear to be impaired with vitamin C intakes around 50 to 70 to 80 milligrams per day, which is actually pretty close to the RDA for vitamin C, despite what we're told every day. So now the, the corollary to that that I'll just mention briefly and then we can wrap up is, is too much vitamin C harmful? Is there a downside to taking tons of vitamin C? I think within reason, I don't have a problem with people supplementing with vitamin C, but excess vitamin C I think may have harmful effects in humans. And there's some suggestion that it can lead to increased incidence of kidney stones, which shouldn't be surprising for us because ascorbic acid can be broken down into oxalic acid and that has to be excreted. So are megadoses of vitamin C above 500 milligrams potentially harmful? I think they might be. And again, we kind of come back to an evolutionary perspective. Would we ever have gotten 500 milligrams of vitamin C consistently? I doubt it. That's a lot of vitamin C to find in the natural world. Um, so I think that excess megadoses are probably problematic for people and I wouldn't overdo it. Or if you are eating a lot of vitamin C in your supplement, you have to ask yourself why maybe check some metrics and uh, yeah. But my, my thinking or my hypothesis is that there's plenty of vitamin C found in animal foods if we're eating them the way our ancestors did. If mm. we're not, a small amount of supplementation is probably pretty benign, but um, at an academic level, I don't think that uh, from what I've seen, you can disqualify or discredit a carnivore diet's sustainability based on lack of vitamin C because I think there's a decent amount there and we sort of challenge the mainstream paradigm here as well. And that vitamin C competes with glucose uh, in, in assimilation. And because there's no glucose around, you'll be able to get away with less. That, that theory I don't actually um, uh, believe has been proven, the glucose ascorbate antagonism theory. I think that whether we're eating a carnivore diet or eating a, um, a ketogenic diet or eating a diet with carbohydrates in our diet, uh, we're going to have essentially the same amount of glucose in our blood or similar amounts. Certainly if we're eating a lot of carbohydrates, especially processed carbohydrates, we may get postprandial glucose spikes that are pretty high. But most of the time, those of us that are insulin sensitive are going to have about the same amount of glucose in our blood. So 
Um, I, I'm not totally convinced the glucose ascorbate antagonism theory works. I just think that if you're in, what we do know is that if you're insulin resistant mm. for any given amount of vitamin C intake, you will use less of it. Um, you will assimilate less of it and your cells will have less of it. So wow. if you are insulin sensitive, I think it's quite possible that you may uh, need less vitamin C. And again, I have no problem with moderate supplementation of vitamin C, but I would caution people against mega dosing of vitamin C. All right, cool. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you, Simland and Paul, for you guys coming on for and giving us, dropping this knowledge. So can you, take uh, yeah, exactly. Do you want to share with our group? How can people follow you? And yeah. So if people want to follow me, um, you can check out my book, The Carnivore Code at thecarnivorecodebook.com. It's on Amazon. This is the preprint copy. This is the first copy that ever got printed. Um, and, uh, I'm, uh, you can check my website, which is carnivoremd.com. All my socials are listed there, but they're all at carnivoremd. Cool. And Seam. Yeah. Um, my website is uh, seamland.com and, uh, I'm Seamland on the social media platforms. And my own book is uh, metabolic autophagy. That's kind of covers, uh, intermittent fasting and autophagy. How do you combine it with uh, resistance training and, uh, building muscle? Awesome. Well, we had a wonderful time talking here and thank you so much everyone for joining in. All right. So have a great night, everyone, and be safe out there. Thank you, everyone. See ya. Bye.